Good evening, everyone, and many thanks for coming to this event tonight. Um, we're delighted to welcome David Crystal here to the Festival of Ideas to share his fascinating insights into language change. David is, of course, a renowned writer, editor, lecturer, and broadcaster, and is one of the world's foremost authorities on language. I was fortunate enough to work with David on the recent third edition of the Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English Language, which has been a flagship work for Cambridge University Press ever since it was first published back in 1995. So tonight, David's going to talk about the many significant developments in the English language since the previous edition of the Encyclopedia was published 15 years ago, and he will be glad to take your questions at the end. There are copies of the Encyclopedia available to purchase downstairs, um, I believe for a bargain price of £20 this evening, and David will be on hand to sign copies as well. Please join me in welcoming David Crystal to the festival stage. Wow. Well, well, thank you for that. Uh, £20. That's very good value. Yeah, it's not bad at all, actually. Yeah, I'm very impressed. Very impressed. I've been having a great time out there. I've been, been sitting there waiting to, to come on, and there's a lovely chap on the street with his tin whistle, I don't know whether you've heard him, playing some fantastic stuff. I, I've, I've been introduced with, with all sorts of music in my life, but never with Danny Boy, uh, which was really quite, quite appealing, actually. Oh dear, no, it's lovely to be here. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation to talk about this, uh, this, this work. Uh, a bit of background about it. You mentioned it's the third edition. Yes, well, you'll get a sense of what's happened to the English language if I give you the other two dates of the other two editions. First edition comes out in 1995. Do you remember 1995? It's quite a while ago. And uh, I mean, and then the second one was 2003, like you mentioned, 15 years ago. Yeah, a lot has happened. And uh, the extent to which I was expecting a new edition to come out really took me aback, I have to say. It's an extra 50 pages in the third edition compared with the second. You know, that's 50,000 words pretty well with some space for pictures and things. You know, it's almost like a new book. I wasn't expecting that, really. So much has happened, and so much of it has been unpredictable, and that's what this talk is going to be about. In fact, there's a mixture of predictability and unpredictability about this whole English language business, isn't there, really? There are certain things you can say are going to carry on happening, and there are certain things that you couldn't imagine happening, no matter how good your imagination might be. Let me start with some of the predictable things. What was the most predictable thing of all? I suppose it was the question of English continuing to be a global language. I mean, we all know English is a global language. Of course, it's the world's lingua franca more than any other language. And, and yet, you know, people were not really talking about English in global terms until the 1990s. There were never any books written on English as a global language until the mid-1990s. And the first time I ever gave talks, and it was round about then. And the question, of course, what everybody was asking was, how many people do actually speak English as a language around the world? I mean, The Sun once had a headline saying, everybody speaks English now, wherever you go, doesn't matter, everybody. Well, of course, we all know that's false. You have to go to 
a city somewhere and go into the suburbs or into the countryside, you soon find the people who don't speak English. So how many do? And of course, uh, it was tricky researching this because there are no statistics, there are no surveys. When you do census returns, you don't actually tick off how many languages you know and how well you speak or listen or read or write those languages. So it's a lot of guesswork goes on. So you, you go to the sources of information that are available. People who teach English in those countries uh, have to do exams in English in those countries. The British Council, for example, does surveys every now and again. And all the sources that you can find, and you put together a guess. And then so long as you keep those same criteria going year after year, then even if that guess is out a little bit, uh, then at least you're producing a fairly reasonable graph of growth. Well, I did all this for the first edition in 1995, and the answer was 1.5 billion. So it's 1,500 million people speaking English around the world at a reasonable conversational level, not necessarily saying they'd be able to give stunning lectures in it or anything, but, you know, an everyday level of conversation. 400 million or so speaking them in the first language countries of the world. That's Britain, Ireland, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, countries of the Caribbean, you know, and a few other countries. And then the rest are people who speak English as a second or foreign language in places, well, everywhere else. You know, China especially, and India especially, and Nigeria. Huge English language populations there. For every one native speaker of English, there were then something like four non-native speakers of English. So the center of gravity of the language had already shifted away from the native speaker to the non-native speaker. So, 1.5 billion. I was expecting, as everybody was, that to increase. So by the time of the second edition in 2003, um, did the same exercise all over again. And it takes a while, by the way. You know, we're talking a couple of months here, especially if you have to ring up embassies and things like that. And the figure had grown to 2 billion, 2,000 million. Well, that's, that's fine. You know, that's a sort of steady, steady growth. A lot of people were coming up with that figure, not just me. There were some other specialists in this kind of survey at the time. David Gradol, some of you will know, dear David, who died last year. Um, he did a similar survey, came up with a similar figure, 2,000 million. Hmm, interesting. In just uh, eight years, eight years, half a billion increase. So what happened for this third edition? Did the same exercise all over again. And the figure that came out was 2.3 billion. 2.3 billion. Interesting. Because I was expecting it. I mean, if you get half a billion in eight years, I was expecting it, if the growth was going to carry on like that, there to be in 15 years, we're going to have another billion, aren't we? But in fact, only 0.3 of a billion. In other words, the spread of English around the world is continuing, but it does seem to be flattening off a little bit. It's still increasing, but not as rapidly as it seems to have been in the past. I wasn't expecting that. I don't know about you. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting the graph to go boom, 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 like that. But no, it's and then flattening a little bit. 
What are the linguistic consequences of this growth? Well, one of the biggest new sections in the book is what happens when a language becomes global in that way? Any country that adopts English immediately adapts it for their own purposes. There are always, aren't there, two big forces driving language. One is the need for intelligibility. We have to understand each other. And that promotes the growth of a standard language, which we all learn in school, and international standards. But the other big force that drives language is the need for identity, who we are, where we're from, which community we belong to, which community we don't belong to. And this fosters the growth of accents and dialects, both at a national level and an international level. Well, this is what we've been seeing, of course. People are calling them New Englishes very often. In other words, the kind of English that grows up in a country which the people want to make different from other countries. We saw it, of course. Nothing new about this. We've seen it since, well, since Irish English developed way back. American English, of course, in, from the 18th century onwards. And then later Australian English and South African English and then Indian English and Nigerian English and now all these other Englishes around the world. There must be 60 or 70 of them that have really developed a a solid institutional presence. And by that I mean you see it in the newspapers and in the magazines and hear it on the radio, things that you would not hear in other parts of the world or read in other parts of the world. I wasn't expecting there to be so many institutionalized presences of these new kinds of English. Dictionaries, if you like. The Dictionary of South African English, the Dictionary of Jamaican English, the Dictionary of Nigerian English, that sort of thing. And they're substantial works, these. You know, the Dictionary of South African English, now in its fourth edition, it's got 10,000 words and expressions in there that are used in South Africa but are not used anywhere else. Or, well, maybe in some of the countries surrounding South Africa a little bit. And you open this up and you look at all the words that are in there, and they're mainly borrowings, of course, from the other local languages like Kosa and Zulu and Afrikaans and so on. And a lot of them are, are simply adaptations of traditional English words that have been given a new sense. <laughs> I remember the first time I went to South Africa, uh, and this was in the late 90s, and being driven down the road by the British Council, and the I see a sign and it says, Robot Ahead. And I turn to him and I say, what does that mean? Have they landed? He, he says, what do you mean, what does that mean? I said, robot ahead. He says, you don't know what robot means? No, I don't know what robot means. You really don't know what robot means? No, what is robot? <laughs> Turns out, it's a, some of you know, I've seen you nodding, it's a South African word for a traffic light. That's all. So people in South African English say things like, you know, the robot is broken, or turn left at the robot, or I live near the robot on the main street. And once you know, you know. But it takes quite a while to learn, well, how many thousand more if you want to really get to understand South African English. Now, the same point is applying to all these other parts of the world where new Englishes have come along. So one of the biggest new sections in this book is to try and represent that in some way. And it's not just a matter of new sounds or new words or new grammar. It's the cultural perspective that you need to somehow reflect. 
That's been the biggest change, I think, between second and third edition. The fact that so many parts of the world now are very fluent in English. It might be a different kind of English, but they're very fluent in it. And you, 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 you sort of they assume you understand them perfectly and vice versa. And it's only after a while you realize, I haven't actually understood what you're saying. I understood the words, I understood the grammar, I understood the pronunciation, but I still don't know what you're saying because I don't understand the culture that's behind it. I'll give you a couple of examples, actually one from not so long ago, which I heard um, at an English language teaching uh, conference and the English native speaker um, was saying to another English native speaker, and there was a third person there who wasn't a native speaker, and he said, I've just had an MOT, and I'm fine. And the other guy said, yeah. And the non-native speaker says, why, why are you worried? Why is your car all right? Why, why, what, what do you mean? You know, I mean, it is, your, your, your car is all right? No, no, I'm fine. No, I've just had an MOT, I just told you. Well, because you and I know uh, having an MOT means, and we could then explain how it's been adapted from the driving situation to the health situation. It means I've had a health check, basically, as we know. But, woof, the number of ambiguities that there are. This is what I mean by a cultural clash. In order to understand that expression, you've got to understand the whole background to how it evolved in the first place. Oh, it was like Clapham Junction in there. What, please? What's your equivalent then? And this is the interesting thing. Because you say to somebody from Nigeria or India or wherever, how would you translate it was like Clapham Junction in there into your dialect of English? And it's an interesting question. And if you explore that sort of thing, you suddenly realize that there are lots of other expressions like that that you wouldn't understand when you were listening to people from that country talking, just as they have had difficulty understanding us when we use our expression. I'm now remembering the first time I ever went to America. Grief. You see, this is not anything just to do with learning English as a second or foreign language. It's also to do with any dialect difference where the cultures are not shared. My first visit to America, I remember it very clearly now. I'm standing in a cafe, no, sorry, a, a diner, um, in, a, in a queue, no, a line, and I go to the front, and the guy says, what do you want? And I say, I, I'd like some eggs. This was in the 1960s. And he says, how do you like your eggs? I had never been asked that question before. This was not, at the time, a British question. People did not ask you, you know, how do you like your eggs? So I stood and said, Cooked? <laughs> and the guy then said, what? Where are you from? I said, Wales. And he said, where's Wales? I said, it's, oh, it's, it's in Europe. Is it near Russia? I said, I said, yes, it's near Russia. You a communist? You, know, I, I, you couldn't make this sort of conversation up. It actually happened. He then said at me, you know, look, buddy, do you want them once over lightly, sunny side up? and then gave me all the expressions of egginess that now I know. But in the 1960s, I did not know. That's what I mean by cultural expressions. And there are thousands and thousands of them for any given new English or old English, for that matter. And that's why that section of the book became much larger than I was expecting it to be. 
And that is going to continue, that rapprochement between linguistic and cultural studies. That is going to continue. That's going to be the biggest continuing development as time goes by in relation to global English. The statistics might level off, but the intensity of the cultural identity element is going to continue as with no change, it seems to me. So that was one of the big predictable changes, really. And the other predictable change, the biggest one, the new one I knew I'd have to have a lot of section new pages for, was, of course, in relation to the internet. You see, 1995, come on, who knew the internet then? Those of you who are old enough to have been sending e emails and things in those days, and I suspect a fair number of us were there then, um, when did you first send an email? Not until the mid-1990s. 1991, Tim Berners-Lee introduces the uh, World Wide Web. The email technology had been around for quite a while, but most of us never encountered it until the mid-90s. I was preparing my book in 1993 to 4. I'd never heard of the web. I'd never heard of email then. There was nothing in the first edition on the internet. Not a dicky bird. And then the second edition comes out in 2003. Ah, well, now Google, at least, has come along in 1999. And blogs are around now. Uh, web blogs first recorded use in 1997, although most people didn't start blogging until the early 2000s. And instant message chat rooms were around. And some things were around then that have died away since, like those old Dungeons and Dragons kinds of games that were so popular in those days, the muds and the moos and things like that, terms that you hardly ever encounter now, but at least these were building up in the 1990s. Instant messaging coming along, text messaging coming along. Great, right. A few pages in the second edition, anticipating, uh, that, well, reflecting that kind of development. And I thought that would be it, really. Uh, what stupid thing to think. Because who would have been... I'm writing this second edition in 2002. Comes out in 2003. Next year, Facebook comes along. I think I get the prize for the fastest out-of-date encyclopedia ever, as far as the internet section was concerned. Because reflect, Facebook, 2004. YouTube, 2005. Twitter, 2006, and ever since then, all the other stuff that you and I know very well. Um, so all the social media and all the other things that have been happening ever since. Well, obviously, that's going to be a huge new section to reflect all that. And not just the new technologies, but the, uh, the, the, the use being made of these new technologies, all the games that were being played with these new technologies, all the... Well, let me give you one example to show how rapidly the whole business changes, how unpredictable the change is. Let's take Twitter. Let's take 2005. <coughs> if you had said to me in 2005 that the next big thing is to put your text messages on the internet, I'd have said you were crazy. 
Because text messages, we all know what they are. Yes, I have my phone. I send you an important message, like I am on the train. Or we, I am eating cornflakes. And you need to know this because you and I are close, we're buddies, and you want to know that I'm eating cornflakes, and this is important to you, and vice versa. So that's how text messaging evolved. There's a one-to-one -one kind of medium where you send short messages, though not that short. I mean, 160 characters is 35 or so words in English. So you can say some quite complicated sentences there, but nonetheless, short messaging, there we go. Me to you, you to me, that's it. So. You want to put those on the internet? Why would anybody want to do that? The whole world needs to know I'm eating cornflakes. The whole world needs to know I'm on the train. Well, I say, you'd be crazy, but Twitter comes along, and that's what Twitter was. SMS for the internet, a short messaging service for the internet. So now I put my message out there. 140 characters now, not 160, because 20 characters are reserved for your ID. You have to know who you are. Slightly shorter, but still. And Twitter becomes the fastest growing internet application of that particular period. Amazing how it took off. And so you're thinking, right, this is cutting edge linguistics. This is, I'll do my PhD on, uh, on the language of Twitter, perhaps. And people did start doing that kind of thing. And the language was very interesting because if you remember that period, if you lived through it and if you used Twitter, you were given a prompt. And the prompt was, what are you doing? And so you would say to people what you were doing. I am doing this, I am doing that. Stephen Fry spent ages saying he was stuck in a lift, for instance. And everybody, millions of people, wanted to know when he was going to be out of the lift. So he tweeted all the time, put Twitter on the map, really, to some extent. Yes, well, what are you doing from a language point of view? Present tense replied. First person pronoun replied, I am doing something. And then in November 2009, Twitter changes its prompt. And the new prompt is, what's happening? What's going on? And ever since then, it has developed in that direction. Now think about it. If you're going to answer the question, what's happening, suddenly it's no longer first person pronouns you're going to use. You're going to use second and third person. She's doing something. He's doing something. They're doing something. You're going to use different tenses. Something has just happened. Something is about to happen. Twitter became more of a news reporting and advertising service at that particular point. The language had changed completely, really. So if you were doing a PhD on Twitter thinking it was cutting-edge electronic linguistics, you suddenly realize in 2010 that actually that was an exercise in historical linguistics because it's all over that period, 2006 to 2009. History now linguistically speaking. That is my problem. That is everybody's problem who is trying to study language on the internet. It changes so fast and so unpredictably. And it's still changing, of course. If you keep following the Twitter story all the way through, then you find that it's evolved in all sorts of unpredictable directions. For instance, because it was so popular, Billions of tweets are now out there, all talking about different topics. Wouldn't it be nice, somebody said, somebody thought, around about 2010, if we should classify these in some way? And so they started to classify them, and they introduced this concept of the hashtag. 
the hashtag, the double cross, that you see often in other circumstances as well. And the hashtag in front of an expression meant that if you searched for that particular expression, you'd find all the tweets that were to do with it. So I might say, hashtag Cambridge University Press, and all the tweets to do with Cambridge University Press would come up, or hashtag Macbeth, and all the tweets to do with Macbeth would come up, and so on. And when that happened, I thought, that's very sensible, and so I made a note, and that's going to be part of the new book, and so on. But then something happened to the hashtag. Because very quickly, people started using it for non-classificatory circumstances. And people started saying things like, I've just been to see Macbeth. Hashtag amazing. <laughs> uh, hashtag are you going? Hashtag it's been on a whole week now. And suddenly any kind of expression and sentence seems to have a hashtag in front of it. What is the function of that hashtag? Interesting, it's a completely different idea, isn't it? It basically says, I found what I'm just about to say of importance, of interest, and I think you will too. It's, it's sort of saying, telling your listener, telling your reader, that what you're about to say is likely to be of relevance to them. It's a kind of development, a semantic development of what the hashtag means. And then people started speaking it. Have you heard them? Yep, a few people have here. I was listening to a conversation the other day and the kids were talking to, I was in a school, and the kids were talking to, they were talking about 16, 17 year olds here, and they were saying, you know, hashtag this and hashtag that, hashtag going out this evening, hashtag yeah. And if you type into Google, hashtag comedy shows, you will find two or three wonderful sketches, one by a group, an Irish group, the other by an American group, uh, where they have entire conversations in which virtually every sentence is preceded by a hashtag. Predict that? Not me. Not me. Even some of the traditional expressions of the internet began to develop new leases of life. The old text messaging abbreviations, for instance. That was one of the things when text messaging came in, around about 2001, 2002, People felt it was a disaster for the English language because the, new, the young children were filling their messages with these abbreviations like, like see you later with an eight in the middle and lol and things like that. Lots of others, of course. I got a little dictionary of textisms from that time with five or six hundred entries in it. Well, yes, okay, this was a new development, certainly. Not that new, of course. Young people of today were not the first to use C for C and U for U. They go back 200 years in English. Queen Victoria used to play rebus games of that kind with her kids. And Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland, uh, used to do similar things. But some of them are new, like LOL, L-O-L. No, Queen Victoria never said that to Prince Albert or anybody, as far as I know. So what's happened here is that people have begun to study these things in a bit more, a greater level of sophistication. LOL is a very good example. When might you use LOL? It means laughing out loud, of course, doesn't it? Although at the beginning, people thought it meant lots of love and all sorts of other things as well. But most people now see it as laughing out loud. And so you send a message saying, uh, yeah, I 
something has just happened, LOL, and it's supposed to mean I just made a joke or I've said something funny and so on. Around about 2012 or thereabouts, maybe earlier, but that's when I first started to notice it, uh, a mood developed as people who are using this expression said to themselves, I'm not actually laughing out loud. It's just a, a little phrase. And then you send a message, and it does make you laugh out loud. And then people say, oh, actual lol. <laughs> Meaning, it really did make me laugh out loud. And then people started to study, and there have been some very interesting studies on this now, um, when you should or should not use LOL. Can you use it anywhere you like, after any message? No, you can't. So what are the circumstances where you might not use LOL? So I might say to you, ah, love your new car, LOL. You know, that's all right. But would you ever hear this? Would you ever read this? Darling, I, I love you very much, LOL. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. It seems that the more intensely emotional or intimate the, the message, the less you're likely to use something like LOL. Hashtag is one of the things that have come off the internet into everyday speech. Not much has yet come into everyday speech. There are a few examples that I've given in the book, but even since the book came out, I've been listening to uh, other things that have been going on. I mean, the most amazing one, the one that really took me aback, was the fact that uh, you can have a new conjunction in English, a new coordinating conjunction in English straight out of the internet. Now, coordinating conjunctions do not change very much over history. What are they? And, or, and but. They're the three. Something happened, and something happened. Something happened, or something happened. Something happened, but something happened. And some people add a couple of others in as well. But they're the three main ones. You don't get a new coordinating conjunction coming along. You know, it doesn't happen in English, and it's just happened. What is it? It's the word slash. I write, he is a teacher slash broadcaster. What does the slash mean? It means teacher and broadcaster. And people are now starting to say this. I heard it just the other day. He's a teacher slash broadcaster. Somebody said that. And I'm hearing it increasingly now. It's a new coordinating conjunction in English. Wow, grammarians, you know, start to salivate at this particular point. It's such an unusual phenomenon. So there's the unpredictability of it all. And the unpredictability in grammar can extend to any area of grammar. I mean, who... I would never have dreamt that we'd get a new suffix in English in 2009 if you'd said to me that in the next 10 years we're going to have a really new productive suffix in English and it's going to be exit. First use of the term Brexit is in fact 2010. Do you know that? I looked it up at OED. It's got a first recorded use in 2010. I mean... We, I'd have said 2016 or something, yeah, but no, 2010. But since 2016, people have been using that exit and adapting it to innumerable situations. It's become a really productive affix now. I have 
virtually any consonant or consonant cluster can precede exit now. Texit, sexit, rexit, bexit, clexit, all the rest of them. They're all being used. What are my favorites? Bexit, I love bexit when it came out. David Beckham was, uh, had to leave the field for some reason, and the headline in the newspaper the next day said, Bexit, B-E-C-K-S-I-T. And just, and just, I thought, yesterday, I just look on the internet, see if there's any new ones come up. And I see a course that's advertising, we can reduce your anxiety levels if you take this course, and, and it's called Strexit. Yeah? <laughs> Stress exit, one assumes. Whatever consonant cluster you can think of, there will be an exit behind it now. That was unpredictable. And then, who would have predicted the changes in oratorical style of American presidents? Okay, folks. Look, believe me, we're going to make the Cambridge Festival of Ideas great again. We really are. We're going to make it great, the Festival of Ideas. It's going to be great. We're going to make it great again. It really is. It really is. Cambridge. That's Cambridge. Where, where's Cambridge, John? Well, yeah. Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're really going to make it great. Believe me. Believe me, folks. Now, you know, that kind of style is very familiar to me in everyday conversation. You and I say things like, hey, you guys, folks, and all the rest of it. You say, oh, believe me. And all the time. We repeat ourselves a lot. Repetition is a very normal feature of everyday conversational English. I say to you, oh, went down to town the other day to get a coat. Needed a new coat, so I went down to town. And I went to get this coat. I needed a coat. And I've said the same thing three times already. But it doesn't matter in everyday chat. I would never have thought that we'd hear that kind of thing at the top level of politics. But you see, we may dismiss it, we may sneer at it, we may say inappropriate, thinking back to the famous orators of the past, Barack Obama, Winston Churchill, and so on. And yet at the same time, well, the guy got in, after all. And when you ask his supporters why they support him, they, one of the things they often say is, he speaks like us. Not like Obama, who was all words and no action. You know, you get that kind of comment being said. So there's obviously something about that kind of style of oratory. It's not traditional oratory, but it is oratory nonetheless. Uh, who would have predicted that? You'd said to me in second edition, I'm going to have a double-page spread with Barack Obama on one page and Donald Trump on the other. I'd have said, don't be silly, but it's there. And then even the most traditional of subjects turn out to need revision. Shakespeare, for instance. I mean, obviously, Shakespeare's got to be part of any encyclopedia of the English language for reasons that you're well aware of. I mean, he, apart from the beauty and power and rhetoric of the language, there is this rather basic point that he seems to have introduced a very large number of words into the English language for, for the first time. How many is the question? How many words did Shakespeare, now, not invent, not create, you can't say that, is the first recorded user of, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the best. Am I allowed to say Oxford? Is it okay? Yeah. Won't suddenly go. Uh, uh. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, there's uh, 
something like, when I did my second edition, something like 2,000 words or expressions that Shakespeare is the first recorded user of. As I say, not invented necessarily. He's just the first person to have written them down. Fair number of them are, of course, genuine Shakespeare neologisms, Shakespeare inventions. When Lady Macbeth says, unsex me here, unsex is a really dramatic kind of, it's obviously a poetic creation there. And there are other Shakespeare expressions like that, like uncurse and unshout. Un is one of Shakespeare's favorite prefixes, and he does creatively build words that way. But when Shakespeare writes down splud, uh, the expletive, and that's the first time it's been recorded in English, well, he didn't invent that. He's just reporting it as he heard it used around. But still, a couple of thousand expressions, first recorded uses about 15 years ago. Did the same count now using the OED's revision. There's a new revision going on at the moment. And the figure is now down to nearer 1,000. Still pretty impressive, but nonetheless, the, as more and more stuff gets put online so that you can study the usage of the plays of the period and the prose writers of the period, people are discovering that some of the words they thought were Shakespearean usages turn out to have been in the language already. A word like lonely, for instance, was for a long time thought to be a Shakespearean usage it was in the language for ages before that, we now know. So that was a surprise that the figure was going to go down so much. And then the other big surprise was the fact that one of the subjects that I've long thought was fascinating at an academic intellectual level suddenly turns out to need to be present in this new edition. The subject is technically called Historical phonology. Historical phonology is the study of the sound, the way sounds change over centuries, thousands of years maybe. Historical phonology means the sound system of a language. So how have the sounds changed from the old Germanic origins of English through Old English to Middle English to Early Modern English to Modern English? And of course, the sounds are continuing to change because pr new pronunciations are coming into English all the time. Now, this is called historical phonology. Absolutely fascinating, one of my favorite subjects. Always thought it was going to be um, a fascinating subject. I never thought for one moment it was going to be useful to anybody. That some other people would say, that's actually a useful subject, but it turns out to be so. Because in 2004, just after the second edition came out, I'm telephoned by Tim Carroll, Shakespeare director from Shakespeare's Globe in London, saying that they're putting on a production of Romeo and Juliet. Now, the Globe, of course, as you know, is an attempt to reconstruct an original theater in which the uh, performances are presented, at the time at least, in original costumes with original music on original instruments, an original movement around the stage, around the big pillars, but nobody had ever thought to do original pronunciation. And so he says, uh, we're going to try that out. Uh, can you help? And I suddenly thought, well, yes, I suppose I can. I mean, I've never done this before, though ironically it had been done before and not a million miles away from here. Because in 1952, the Marlowe Society here in Cambridge actually did an original pronunciation 
they had a go at it with Julius Caesar. One off, never did it again. But now, 50 years on, right, let's have a go. And so I suddenly find myself uh, thinking original pronunciation. And then for this new edition, the technology has moved on so much that the press now make it able to do an audio dimension to a printed book. So I spent a very happy, no, that's the wrong word, intense, yes, few hours not so long ago uh, in a sound studio here, audio recording the historical English sections of the encyclopedia. So you can read Beowulf, but you can now hear the Beowulf expressions. You can read Chaucer, you can hear the Chaucer expressions. And the Shakespeare stuff, which proved to be the most popular of all the original pronunciation investigations, is now very strongly present there. Yes, the OP has since become a bit of a movement, really. Um, it's, it's amazing. I, I, when the Globe did that first experiment, I was thinking it was just going to be a one-off. But in fact, now, something like 20 or so of the plays have been done in OP around the English-speaking world, mainly in America, uh, because the Americans love it, because OP sounds more like American English than does RP, receive pronunciation. And in order to illustrate that point, perhaps I could just give you a very brief example for which I need an RP speaker sitting in the front row. Uh, if she would kindly come up and do me an example. I'll give you an example of RP versus OP, and you'll see the point about American English straight away. What would you like to do? Um, the beginning of um, Henry V? Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars. And at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment? Then at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. Thank you, Hilary. Now, that accent, you all recognize it, of course. Probably some of you are now thinking, we speak like that where I come from. <laughs> because what you're hearing is some of those original features of English that have now gone from received pronunciation, but which are still very strongly present in regional dialects, regional accents. So you hear the R after the vowel, and you think, you would think, most of us, I imagine, West Country. But in America, you see, they wouldn't think like that. They'd think of it as being very part, much part of normal American English, for most parts of America, anyway. But it's not just R after the vowel. A kingdom for a stage. A stage, where'd you hear that? Stage, aye, good day, right? We're up Yorkshire way now, aren't we? You know, we're up that way. Oh, for a muse of fire, not oh, for a muse of fire. Oh, where you hear that in Wales, for instance, and many other parts. In other words, there are lots and lots of echoes of different accents in there. And especially, the effect is one of a fresh kind of insight into Shakespeare, or into any 
a dramatist of the period, for that matter, which produces illumination, which is one of the reasons why the Globe took it on. Rhymes that don't work in modern English suddenly start to work in original pronunciation. You get puns coming clearer in OP. You get a different rhythmic effect, and so on. So that proved to be one of the biggest changes between the second and the third edition, actually. I have to... I was racking my brains. How on earth am I going to tell that story in print? You know, it's virtually impossible to tell the story in print. And then blow me down if the, uh, the auditory technology comes along to help solve the problem. And so you can just listen. I mean, obviously I describe, but you can also listen to these effects um, if you log in to the appropriate place. And that's one of the biggest things. One other point, which um, to make the sort of talk come full circle, is that the audio dimension of any book on the English language now, it seems to me, is an absolutely critical factor. It is really surprising to me that in this day and age, there are so few audio books on language and on linguistics generally. I don't know of any. I've done a few myself of my own books, but I don't know them about them generally. An audio book on phonetics? Ideal, you'd think. There's no such thing. And so when looking at the accents section of this book, suddenly realized that here's another opportunity to start talking, start illustrating some of the things that are happening. And I'll conclude the formal part of the talk with just one example. If I was to ask you, what's the biggest change, biggest pronunciation shift in English that's taking place at the moment? It has been for a little while and is definitely going to become increasingly important over the next few years. What's it going to be? And you'll probably start thinking about vowels and consonants and things. And that's not what I'm talking about. No, it's a shift in rhythm. A shift in rhythm. Now, to understand this point, you have to realize that there are many different rhythms in the languages of the world. Traditionally, in English, there's the tum-ti-tum-ti-tum-ti-tum sort of rhythm that you get in traditional poetry, but in everyday speech as well. I went to town the other day to buy a coat. Ti-tum-ti-tum-ti-tum-ti-tum-ti-tum-ti-tum. That's traditional British English, isn't it? The other type of rhythm, which you get in many foreign languages, like French, um, but also in some... English-speaking parts of the world is called syllable-timed rhythm, where it's ratatatatatatatatat. You hear it a lot in Indian English, for example. The consequences of what I am saying are very important. That kind of rhythm. And you hear it a lot in the languages in the English of the Caribbean. Somebody from Jamaica does not say, I'm from Jamaica. They say, I'm from Jamaica. Ratatatatatat. And that, of course, has been the primary influence on rap and hip-hop and all the, the type of speech that has appealed especially to the younger generation. And what has surprised me more than anything else was to find that this kind of rhythm has gone beyond its original musical context into everyday speech in some parts of the English-speaking world now, that never traditionally used to have it. So go to the east end of London now, where Cockney, of course, is the traditional accent, and you now hear this syllable-timed Cockney speech. So the guys do not say to each other, hey, mate, uh, you and I, we've got to go down to the, uh, the garage this evening, all right? 
he's utterly down to the garage this evening, all right? Tum, tum, tum. They speak like this. Hey, mate, we've got to go down to the garage this evening, all right? It's a very noticeable change. And I thought, as going to be young persons, only I'm beginning to hear it spread. So I wouldn't mind betting that in 50 years' time, we're all going to be speaking like that. I wonder. So for the 15th edition of this book, um, we may well have a very large section on th that sort of thing. Well, there we are. That's uh, in three quarters of an hour, of course. I can only give you some hints as to some of the changes, but I hope I've picked on some of the important ones. And in a few moments, we'll have a time for some questions. Thank you very much. <laughs> and there are a couple of microphones wandering about, so please just sort of wave and they'll perhaps see you at some point. So a couple down the front here already, and one over there too, one in the middle there. Sure. Hi. Um, you were saying that you don't think the um, main phonetic change in our lifetime will have been um, vowels or consonants. And, um, I, I, I'm sure you're right, but uh, something that I've noticed since my childhood is the um, elision of the vowel oo and e, mm -hmm. so that oo is almost the same as oo. Mm. I don't know if you've spotted that. And things like that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool, cool, cool. I heard somebody, cool. somebody Not cool, cool. That's right. Somebody called Ruth was introduced on the radio the other day, and I swear she was introduced as Ruth. Like Ruth, Lord Ruth, Ruth. Yeah, the, the lip rounding is going, yeah. No, there are lots of individual changes to vowels and consonants, absolutely. They will continue. But the thing about rhythm is that it affects everything, you see. The, the, the entire utterance is affected in this way. That's what I meant when I said it's the, it's the most far-reaching or wide-reaching change that's likely to take place. Within that, there's going to be lots and lots of little changes of the OOE uh, -E type. Yeah. Yes, I never hear young people today say, that is cool. No, 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 it's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Go to school. It's, it's uh, a spread lips articulation. Yeah. Thank you. One here? I wondered what OP Jane Austen would sound like. OP Jane Austen. Well, we're 100 years on now, and you can take OP all the way through to the present day. Uh, the early, if you listen to the early BBC recordings, for instance, you hear some very distinctive pronunciations. For instance, today we say the word Lord like this in RP. I mean, Lord, Lord. But in the early 1900s, it was an open vowel. Lard, lards, lards, lard, lard, like that. So that's in 100 years. Go back another 100, and the main changes, the most, things you'd notice most about Jane Austen uh, or anybody from that period is changes in stress. Not so much changes in vowels and consonants, uh, but changes in stress. Uh, for instance, um, uh, you and I might go to the theater and sit in the balcony. But in Jane Austen's time, it was a balcony. A balcony. And if you go to a book by a man called John Walker in uh, 1791, he wrote a, a English the first English pronouncing dictionary um, of the language. And you go through that, you know, item by item, you'll find that there are hundreds and hundreds of stress shifts of that kind. 
And of course, Jane Austen overlaps with that period perfectly. So I'd expect that to be the main, the most noticeable feature. Yes, it's on there, and then there's a couple over here. Uh, hi, I um, I read something interesting. I can't remember who by about um, punctuation being used in a different way by mm. certain subgroups. The example they gave was a full stop at the yeah. end of a message. That's right. The demise of the um, demise, 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 mose, moose, uh, uh, of the full stop of the period. Yes, that made front page news in the New York Times when this was reported. It's another example of one of those unpredictable things. The full stop, as you well know, because you were taught it when you were about six, uh, was that it's got to be there to end a sentence that is a statement. In fact, it's always got to be there, whether it's a question or an exclamation mark. Because a question mark is actually a curl with a full stop underneath, and an exclamation mark is a line with a full stop underneath. So the full stop is always there. But if it's a statement, it has to end with a full stop. You were beat, had that beaten into you, I imagine, or persuaded to use it. Right. So one of the big changes when the internet came along, being a graphic medium originally, was that short messaging tended to drop punctuation. You had minimalist punctuation from quite early on. Uh, you would have emails with no punctuation marks at all, or SMSs with no punctuation in, and so on. Now, if you've got a short messaging interaction, like say we're messaging on WhatsApp, or something like that, most of the sentences you're going to use are going to be short. You're not going to be using many, if any, sentence sequences. So the two functions of the full stop, one to show that a sentence has come to an end, isn't needed because the screen will tell you that is the case. And the other, that it's there to separate sentences, isn't needed because that doesn't happen very often. So the tradition built up, you don't put full stops at the end of sentences in short messaging interactions. And this started off maybe as a, a geeky kind of thing, especially for young people. It's now pretty universal, unless you are an absolute total full stop pedant, in which case you will want to put your full stops everywhere. Of course, there will be some people who will insist on that. But the majority of people now, whatever their age, don't bother putting full stops in after statements in short messaging interactions. And that's a, a corpus generalization. I mean, I'm not just, it's not just my impression People have collected lots of examples and seen that that is the case. So, if it's normal not to put a full stop in, what's going to happen if you do put one in? And this is the fascinating thing. So, if I send you a message saying, uh, I'm going to the party tomorrow night, and you say, fantastic, and I say, Johnny's coming too. Now, if I just say, Johnny's coming too, with no full stop, it just means Johnny's coming too. But if I say, Johnny's coming too, full stop, it means, oh dear, Johnny's coming. Oh no, Johnny's coming. The full stop, in other words, adds an emotional charge to the sentence that's just been preceding. And, you know, I, I don't myself feel that because it's not my generation particularly, but lots and lots of people do feel that the full stop adds an element of seriousness to what's just been said. And that's a very unusual and new development in the language indeed. Thank you. Uh, I'm very happy to be present here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my question is, um, it's about phonetics. Uh, I come from Russia and I love phonetics and I uh, studied 
and I trained myself uh, to speak more like a, you know, like a Sikh pronunciation yeah. representative. Uh, of course, my accent changed, and I kind of I bended it to my bent it to my knees. Um, but it always concerns me if um, if there is any data or any research being done on um, how important it, it is now for young people to actually acquire this accent or be mm. you know, close to the... Yeah. Yes, RP has, um, was, was always a minority accent, remember. It was only ever spoken by about 2 or 3% of the population of England, remember, not in Wales, uh, you know, and not, not in Scotland, uh, and, you know, but in, in England. And that figure has been getting less and less and less indeed. Fewer and fewer and fewer. Um, now, two things should be noted here. One is it hasn't disappeared. It simply changed its character, its phonetic character. So the RP that was described by Daniel Jones in his phonetics books in the 19, early 1900s is no longer the same as the RP that you'll hear spoken today. You will still find some people who speak with a very far back kind of way, of course but the majority of people have now switched. Now, you need some examples to illustrate this. Even Her Majesty, people have studied her speeches from the throne from 1953 to the present day and shown that she has, even she has adapted her accent, got a little bit more down market. Um, just a, a wee bit, a wee bit. For example, in the 50s, she would say the word M-A-N would be man, 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 with an air sound. Today, it's more man, 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 with an ah sound. You hear that slight difference? Or to take another example, um, the word C-U-P, which in those days would have been very open, cup, a cup, cup, is now more cup, cup, with an, more an uh-like sound. Cup, cup. See, slight difference there, you see. And uh, on the radio, when you hear the BBC pronouncers, um, uh, uh, pronouncers, announcers, <laughs> pronouncers, I love it, um, spe speaking, uh, somebody like Charlotte Green, who is a classic example of the old-style RP of the BBC, is on record saying that, you know, she hardly ever hears that now. Um, so the, the RP has adapted. It's not disappeared, but it has adapted to um, circumstances. And you get what is often called modified RP now, um, which is much more the the more common encounter in educated people than the traditional RP is. So, you know, life goes on, life changes, like Brexit. <laughs> Any more? We must stop in a moment, but I'm sure there's one here, surely, and peep around at the back. Uh, thank you for such a oh, lovely talk. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, a lot of people have seen in the news recently that something has been added to the dictionary, um, which a lot of people would view as an accent-based pronunciation. What do you think is the driving force behind um, considering that as its own word rather than an accent-based pronunciation? Mm. Yeah, it, it is a bit of a, a, a difference. It, it, it wouldn't go in if it was just a pronunciation feature. That would be marked simply as a variant under the heading of something or something like that. No, it would only go in if there is some associated usage of a semantic or grammatical kind that's going on now. I don't think grammar is particularly relevant here, but certainly semantically, uh, if you look at the new entry on something 
and you look at the meanings that the OED people have given to it, and it's not just the OED, but other uh, dictionaries too, then you find that they're not exactly commensurate with the meanings of something that were previously present under the entry on something, if you follow me. Uh, so there's a slight semantic shift taking place here, and that has to be the motivation. Um, but you never, again, you never quite know. I mean, the poor old, uh, you know, who'd be a lexicographer? It, it's the devil of a job at the moment. It really is. I mean, once upon a time, it was a relatively easy job to do. Relatively easy, because we knew where we were. We had the spoken language and we had the written language. And now we have the internet. And on the internet, all sorts of crazy things happen. I mean, think Urban Dictionary, for instance. Well, I mean, no, don't think it, unless you've got a very, a very thick skin. Um, and how on earth do you take account of that kind of spontaneous eruption of lexical creativity that's taking place? So the, the lexicographers have clear criteria. You know, you, you will only get an entry into the dictionary if it has a certain number of um, examples, a certain minimum number, you know, 50 or 100 or something like that, spread over a range of different usage contexts um, and other criteria as well. And so not that many new words come into the dictionary every year. How many come in? Um, well, on average, about two or three a day, about 1,000 a year. That, that's the sort of you know, going rate for neologisms in, in English. And that's only a fraction, of course, of the words that are novel that don't get into the dictionary at all uh, because they're in South Africa or Nigeria or heaven knows where. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see the task facing lexicographers at the moment. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's 7 o'clock, and I'm told we must leave uh, in order to uh, let somebody else in here in a little while. Uh, I'll be downstairs if somebody had, has a question and they didn't have a chance to ask um, next to where the books are. Uh, happy to sign anything except a check. Um, and uh, it'll be lovely to see some of you down there. Uh, thank you very much indeed for listening. <laughs>